Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am the lead strategist at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me Dr. Scott H. Moore, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Great Texts at Baylor University and author of How to Burn a Goat, Farming with the Philosophers. Hi, Scott. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, indeed. Thanks for being here. I really liked your book. It caught my eye. How could it not? Talking about farming, talking about philosophy, and also... um, the goat burning. Maybe that's a good place to start. What is with that title? <laughs> well, it comes from an episode. It's the first story in the book about um, one of our goats that uh, accidentally died, got her horns caught in a, in some feed buckets. And um, it was fairly early in our farming uh, adventure. And uh, we had to figure out what to do with a um, 150-pound dead goat. Uh, and um, uh, we ended up burning it and it was food for thought yeah how did you find yourself in a position to have to care for uh, a late goat how does this how does this happen to someone we had long um enjoyed being in the country and um we had dreamed of living in the country for a long time and i've been reading wendell berry for 25 years and as i sometimes said, you know, you can only read Wendell Berry for so long before you finally give in. And we moved out to the country. Yeah, that's a good line with Wendell Berry and certainly true. In the last couple of weeks, I read The Memory of Old Jack and Remembering. And I always say that the the Port William novels are just distilled nostalgia. (laughs) Like, like like the times gone by of the the family farm in that era and they're also mournful but they're beautiful books too i really like existing in that world sometimes i don't even remember what happens in a particular book i just remember the way it made me feel does any of this connect with you yes uh it certainly does i mean i love i love those books especially remembering i think it's an extraordinarily powerful book i as a Professor, not just of philosophy, but of uh, great texts. I teach Dante's Divine Comedy regularly, and that's the Dante book uh, that starts in hell and moves through purgatory and has a kind of vision of paradise at the end. Uh, so I love I love those books. Uh, I've been writing and thinking about um, uh, Barry for a long time, and I've read and reread these these books, most of them, many times. Wow. I did not make the Divine Comedy connection, but I recently finished, I was reading a canto or two a day through all three parts, and I finished it, I think, about a month ago. But I Wonderful. Yeah, it was my first read-through. I read the uh, Mark Musa translation. I don't know if you, if you care for that one or not. 
You know, um, it's um, it's a very good translation, and um, I have used it. Uh, I don't. It's not one of the ones that I use now on a regular basis, but it's an excellent translation, and the notes are very good, and um, it's wonderful. Those notes were indeed uh, salvific, I guess you could say. Without them, I would be helpless. That and the Great Courses uh, lecture series on it, I thought was super helpful, too. Um, we're going to get into this. I'm so happy that you dropped that so close to the start of the episode because um, longtime listeners will know I have been desiring a great text, you know, uh, Western Canon plus climate series for a super long time. And uh, I know classics people, they're always trying to say, trust me, they're still relevant and no one believes them. But damn it, Scott, I want to believe. And we have to find a way to make this relevant so we can get into that unless you feel the need to immediately respond to any of that. For someone to pick up the Divine Comedy and start reading it, it presents some enormous challenges. And some of those are just the fact that it's a it's a a poem in a hundred cantos, uh, a poem written in the 14th century about Italian politics and Catholic theology. So there are all kinds of barriers that someone might find. But as soon as you get into it and you begin to, to realize what's happening here, you realize that it really is a timeless story of a man who has lost his way. He's lost his way and he can't find his way back precisely because of his own vices, his pride and his greed. And he needs to return to where he came from. He needs to return to those uh, those teachers and those texts and those beliefs that made him who he was. And it's a journey through hell and purgatory and all the way into paradise. I I was just teaching it with some students, and we were we were talking about the very end of the Paradiso, in which Dante has this vision of at the very end, Canto thirty of the Paradiso. He's meeting Beatrice. Points out the spot where Henry VII, who will be crowned the Holy Roman Emperor, is going to sit in the Empyrean realm. And um, the kind of tensions between the various levels of government and authority that we all find ourselves in. And I was just thinking about the last few weeks with COVID. You know, we've got governors arguing with the president. We've got mayors arguing with the governor. You know, who has authority? Uh, who's responsible? Who's going who's going to solve and address these problems? And how does our own spiritual health and pride deal with our rather tenuous relationships with the various levels of government that we have to experience? I mean, that's Dante's problem, and it's the problem that's on the CBS News tonight. So, <laughs> Yeah, that book is surprisingly political. And I remember seeing, I forget which canto it is in Inferno, but it's the one with simony, which is the selling of church offices. But a whole slew of popes are pushing each other down one on top of the other one. I'm like, wow, you're this is the Middle Ages and you're depicting popes in hell. Are you not concerned at all? But I don't know. He hates Boniface, though. That's no secret, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But it's 200 years before the Protestant Reformation, and he's addressing precisely some of the same things that uh, the Reformers addressed, which are the, the selling of religious goods and services um, that we find. Yeah, I, th I thought that was really quite something, although I feel a bit pedestrian because I did prefer, I preferred Inferno to Purgatorio and preferred Purgatorio to, to Paradiso. I know that's like the least erudite way to prefer them, but I loved all the, so the contraposse for, for the listener. Uh -huh. I'm sure you know this, but 
<laughs> but for the punishments in Inferno and even in Purgatory, it's supposed to be like an ironic twist on it. And yep. some of those I thought were so so beautifully poignant and sad and funny. I feel like I got a lot out of the. I think it would be interesting just as a secular reader. I think you could still get quite a lot out of those for living a good life too. This is me desperately trying to make this relevant. There's good things in there too. If you are not a devout Catholic reader in 2020 to still appreciate. I hope so. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, there's no question about that. You, uh, I think those of us that are, are Christians, we find a special relevance here, but it's not for nothing that it is one of the four or five most important books in the Western canon and for people of all faiths or, or even of no faith. Yeah, one, I guess now that I have you here and we're already talking about it, I can ask a question that I've had. Do you know that that famous line? I think it's from The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, his famous hell is locked from the inside. Are you familiar with that? You know, it's been a long time since I've read The Problem of Pain, but I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the exact quotation. Yeah, yeah. I, I could, I'll could. i try to put it in the show notes or pull that section out if you're listening and you're, you're curious. But C.S. Lewis has a famous section about how hell isn't just a punishment imposed upon a sinner. Hell is, some, is, is like a, a sinner who has locked God out of one's life. And there is a section in Inferno that reminded me of that. And I want confirmation or disconfirmation of that. I think it's Farinata. I think, I think that's his name. But Dante is talking to him on his level in Inferno. And this guy is insistently wanting to know which family Dante is from and trying to play this one-upsmanship. But he's literally being tortured for eternity, cut off from God, cut off from all hope. And he's still playing this status game and seemingly is oblivious to the fact that he is actually in hell because he's so self-involved. I could not get over that. Is that an accurate reading, Scott? Well, yes. There's probably a little bit more that we could say about uh, Ferranata delle Uberti. But The main point that you're pushing here uh, that's uh, consistent with what Lewis said is absolutely right. Hell is God giving people what they want, which is separation from God. And the contrapasso, the the notion that we have here is that the sins are their own punishment. So if I'm an angry person and my life is characterized by wrath, then it's that very wrath and that very anger which is the source of my own punishment. Uh, And not just in the afterlife, I mean, even right now. By contrast, when the souls that we meet in purgatory, we meet Manfred, who was a really bad guy, and uh, some others. And what's what's clear is that that it's just one tear, one Maria, he says, uh, one tear of remorse is enough for one to be saved. The implication, of course, being that those that are in hell shed not one tear of remorse. So, you know, and there's a deeply contested question here about uh, about the reality or, or the goodness or the truthfulness of eternal punishment in hell. But uh, but Dante's point is that hell is is God giving people what they want, which is separation from God, and that our punishments are our own sins. I mean, what it is that we do. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's probably my read of it too. One other interesting thing about Dante, I swear we'll go back to something adjacent to climate soon. <laughs> well, if we're talking about hell, there's a lot there for climate. Oh, um, yeah? So. Oh, t- take us there then. I was going to go some another direction. Let's go there. I just meant temperature. Uh, oh, you know. God. Is it that, <laughs> is that, that simple? Wow. Very superficial read, Scott. I'm disappointed. Scott, where would you say your 
interest in philosophy and classics and theology, where does that meet with farming? Which one drives the other? And, and how did you make these connections here? Is, you know, what we just talked about with Dante, is that just something when you're out there riding around on your mower or taking care of uh, cows and chickens and, and goats? Or is there something deeper going on? Well, you know, it's it's a little hard to always know. I think that most of us are prone to certain sorts of self-deception uh, all along the way. I tell my students that philosophy is just thinking hard about life. And etymologically, it's the love of wisdom. And one of the things that the farm does is it presents a reality to us that is not easily manipulated into a kind of consoling fantasy. The animals have to be taken care of. The gardens have to be tended. Uh, you have to have rain. You have to take care of these things. It's a, it's a reality which stands over against uh, ourselves. And therefore, it leads itself to lots of, of connections with reflection on how best to tend this and how best to take care of these matters. And those are all deeply philosophical questions when we begin to think about what does human flourishing look like and what kind of life should we, should we live? When you add to that, um, that the farm is a great laboratory for the integration of knowledge, I mean, uh, biology, economics, uh, chemistry, geology, politics. I mean, all of these things come to, together uh, in the context of the life lived amidst the fields, cultivating the agros. That's what agriculture is. It's ripe for philosophy and for philosophical reflection. So I think it's right there. I think it's, for me, it's hard to do this kind of work without uh, allowing my mind to reflect and to contemplate what's significant, what's of value, how to solve very particular problems, but also where the significance of solving this problem lies. I, I think it comes together in lots and lots of ways. Yeah, I like that too. And I've been thinking quite a lot about crafting lately and how much of my life do I want to purchase versus participate in more actively. And I find I enjoy my life more when I am more involved in in it. There's something about just ordering stuff. Uh, granted, I love the dopamine rush as much as anyone of getting a package and, and, and shopping. But I've been trying to focus on what I can actually build. I was reading uh, Nick Offerman's book on woodworking recently. Do you happen to know him by chance? I've seen him on shows and I have read some things that he he does, um, but I, I certainly don't know him personally. Uh, uh, yeah, that would be, be cool if you did. Well, he's a huge Wendell Berry fan. In fact, he reads on Audible, The Unsettling of America, and um, another book of his, actually, I was surprised to see the other day. But yeah, he calls Wendell Berry his favorite author. And a uh, great book on woodworking. And it definitely inspired me to, to dive back into some unfinished projects and to do that more seriously. But I think he might be quoting Wendell Berry about how the unifying of intellectual labor and problem solving with your hands is this like humanity's sweet spot. And I think we've erred so far into just, uh, you know, cogitating, writing, reading, banging on keyboards that I don't think a lot of people really experience that unification that for me, it feels like coming home. It feels like really rewarding. I'm sure it feels like that to you too, but I'm not sure people are experiencing it nearly as much as maybe they'd like to. Well, they're not, they're not experiencing it as much as they, they could 
precisely because in most cases they've been given a vision that labor is something to be uh, overcome. Wendell has a wonderful line in which he says that we have made labor fit for nothing than to be avoided. We don't, we don't recognize the goodness that comes from this. And we don't value people who, uh, who are engaged in this kind of labor. And so there's a, there's a corrupting mechanism that, that follows from this. We look down upon people that are engaged in physical labor as if it weren't valuable, when, of course, none of us would be here if there weren't people that were in fact engaged in precisely these kinds of things. And one of the things that we very quickly discover is that yes, it's a lot of work, but it's, in, it's extraordinarily valuable work. And, and one of the things that I push with my students and with those groups that I speak to is, is the importance of, of having a little garden. And it's not that you're going to become self-sufficient necessarily because you grow a few tomatoes or you do this, but all of a sudden you become attuned to the life cycle and the, the ways in which we are dependent upon the rain and dependent upon the seasons and how these things change, we are all thoroughly corrupted by being able to go to the grocery store and buy watermelons in the middle of the winter. And we don't think about the fact that those watermelons had to be stuffed full of chemicals to be shipped 2,000 miles to get them to us. I mean, so we, we've just become accustomed to a certain kind of convenience here that most of us have never thought about. And if we really think about it, we realize that, that a watermelon that you eat in, the, in January, it tastes like it's traveled for 3,000 miles uh, filled with uh, all kinds of chemicals, as opposed to waiting for summer and waiting for that time of the year when this is an appropriate reward for the kind of work that's done. And, and better yet, got a little, bit of, a little bit of a spot, well, you can grow your own. And you don't have to have any land. I mean, if you've only got an apartment and a sunny window, you can grow some cherry tomatoes. And if you've got a patio, you can grow cherry, you can grow tomatoes, peppers, and onions. And um, all of a sudden, you're in the salsa business. And that may not be the very best salsa that you've ever had in terms of what you might buy from a store, but it's going to taste the best to you because you grew all of those products and you participated in that cycle and you began to understand these things. I mean, I, I think that these, these kinds of habits, these ways of being are absolutely formative for the kinds of people that we can become, uh, not merely because I had a, enough vegetables to make a couple of jars of salsa, but because I'm participating in this process and now I'm thinking and I'm attuned to the changes that are happening in the world. And rain is no longer something that inconveniences my weekend. It is absolutely essential to the preservation of humanity. Wow. A lot of beauty in, in those statements. So you think being involved in, in craft to some degree means a more present orientation or an increased capacity for being present and taking pleasure in, you know, quotidian living, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what kind of craft uh, work um, you do, Ross, whether you do some woodworking or some leatherworking or, or, you know, whether you're, I mean, uh, you're cooking. I mean, all, all of these things that we engage in, they've been diminished because we've moved them into hobbies rather than, than thinking of them as characteristic of, of our lives. And, you know, I mean, if you're um, into woodworking or you're, you're making some things here, that piece of furniture or that, um, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, it's, 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 it's an ornamental piece for, for the kitchen table or for the cabinet. 
your life has gone into that and you know about the shape of the wood and you know about how many times you had to sand it and how much involved and what goes into that. A world where we just, you know, point and click and get something else from Amazon, those things get thrown away when they break and wear out, uh, which of course they will because they're not designed to last because they want us to buy another one. And yet when we begin to participate in these things, we are transformed. I was listening to your um, uh, interview with a wonderful Virginia farmer, uh, Joel Salatin, and and you were talking about the Michael Pollan piece. And uh, one of my favorite Michael Pollan quotations comes from one of his TV shows in which uh, he's talking about food preparation. And he says, some people think that cutting onions is an inconvenience uh, and an obstacle to real life. But cutting onions is actually real life. <laughs> that, that, that's really where it is. Um, wow. You're clearly quite passionate about this. And I, I'm newer to this. Did this take you a lifetime to learn? Or did you kind of already know this before you wanted to get a farm? Or maybe is this why you wanted to get a farm to begin with? You know, it all, it all combines uh, together, Ross. I mean, um, you know, you have kind of an idea about something and you have role models and you have people that you emulate and you look up to and you're, you're frustrated. I mean, you, you see sort of how things, uh, how things go. And so you, you know, you try a little bit of this. I mean, our, our first, um, our first gardens were in fact um, in the suburbs and they were exactly salsa gardens. And it's because I like hot peppers and, and, um, and growing some jalapeno peppers in our part of the country is about the easiest thing in the world to do. You can hardly, hardly go wrong with it. And, um, and then you begin to experiment with a few other things. You try some, some hybrid tomatoes and then you try some heirloom tomatoes and you begin to learn the different kinds of varieties. And, and then, you know, the bugs come and they kill them all and you, you have to start over again. Well, that's, uh, that's all part of the learning process and it becomes, it becomes exciting. I, I have told lots of people that our little farm is um, a thousand and one science fair projects. There's a kind of curiosity about the world and what's going to happen if we do this and, and what can we learn from this situation. It's great fun. I mean, uh, but it's also extraordinarily rewarding. I, I don't doubt it one bit, even from my much smaller scaled down urban homestead model. I remember reading something about how the word amateur used to be a compliment and how it used to be this great thing when in the early days of uh, baseball as a national spectacle, you know, people who were amateurs, that, that was like a point of pride. And there's something about once the, the big money started changing hands, it sort of changed it a little bit. Do you know the story or like the philology of amateur and how that changed over time? Sure. It comes from uh, a more, I mean, to be an amateur is to be, a lover, one who is in love. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) With whatever it is. And you do it for the love as opposed to doing it for the pay. Yeah, I can see that. I am not good at all of the things that I do. I have been making bread, sourdough and otherwise for a while. I'm just, I'm not a good baker and I keep trying because I think it's fun and I like learning from the microbiology and chemistry of it. I feel like I get, there's something about it that I, I just like doing, but I, even if people are bad at their crafts that they're practicing, I think it's just good for us. I feel I feel better and more a part of my world than I would otherwise be, even if I make bad bread once a week. So, you know, I think that's absolutely right. My wife is a is a really fine baker, and um, and she makes bread um, 
almost every day. Uh, we really don't buy bread uh, anymore. And it's, um, it's wonderful. It's sort of like everything else. Once you kind of start going down this road, A, you're going to get better at it. And you're going to realize how gummy uh, some of that stuff that we were buying at the grocery store was. And, um, you know, it's perfectly formed and it's perfectly cut and uh, it goes into the sandwich bag uh, very easily. Uh, and maybe it'll, it, not maybe, it will certainly last longer on the shelf than our homemade bread. But it doesn't begin to compete in terms of the taste, especially when it's hot. And it's not, um, and you, you lose that, um, that rewarding capacity of participating in, in, in engaging in just this task. Hmm. Do you think in some measurable ways, we as a society in the United States have become uh, just more specialized as time has gone on and we've lost this ability to fluidly move between yeah a thousand and one science fair uh projects as you said well i i think that that's um that's characteristic of affluent societies um i mean we have gotten to the place uh i mean we where in most cases when we want something done we we make it happen by purchasing it or buying it or by hiring it or by renting it. And uh, we've become accustomed to thinking about those kinds of things. And there, um, you know, there are, uh, there are certainly benefits to that. I mean, I, this last week we had a, a little plumbing problem and I, I think I made about four or five trips to Lowe's and Home Depot to get the right part and to take back the wrong part and then the part that I broke. Uh, and then, well, I mean, I'm sure it would have been a lot easier to hire a plumber. And maybe if you come back to me next week, um, when I have a flood, you'll say, Hey, you should have hired that plumber. Um, but for a small project like this, um, it's important, I think, to be able to say, okay, I, I can figure this out. I mean, and, and I, you know, we can, uh, we're not averse to technology here. We can look it up on YouTube. We can see how people do these things. And, um, and now we participate in the process and we, um, and if we learn to do this now, well, maybe we'll be a little bit better next time. And I, I think that's a, that's an important part of cultivating virtues of sustainability and, uh, and self-sufficiency in these ways. And, and certainly during a time of pandemic, it's very important for us to be able to begin to take care of some of our knitting. This has come up I think at least once before we did one with Quill Robinson of American Conservation Coalition, which is a conservative environmental group. And we ended up talking about founding of the United States and about this idea of Republican virtue. And in order to have democracy, you need a well-educated citizenry and they need to be like the, the, the dream of people like Thomas Jefferson in particular was that you'd have these independent human farmers who were small landowners who were, you know, they would farm by day and read about Rome in the evening, basically. And uh, I don't know that we, I, uh, if you swap out Rome for true crime, then we do have some of that. But I don't know that we are uh, approximating that goal as a, as a citizenry, perhaps. Maybe, maybe you're seeing no, something different for me. I don't know. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, 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 we haven't. And that's largely because it hasn't been modeled for us, right? It's not, it's not a part of our imagination to imagine that that's something to aspire to. Um, in most cases, I mean, I mean, I mean, life is hard. Things are expensive. And a lot of us are tired. And the last thing in the world that we think about adding to our day 
is okay. Well, now we gotta gotta make bread, or I'm gonna go out and and uh, uh, and dig potatoes, um, God, or read Homer, <laughs> or read Homer, um, because we'd rather sit there and watch Netflix. Um, well, there's a there's a similarity, right? I mean, both of them are in fact entertaining and can be inspiring and in all kinds of ways. But our our culture has has implicitly taught us to try and uh, that that leisure means not being um not not working and um and that's um that's a kind of complicated story but that's not the best way to think about leisure and um and it ends up being corrupting in a certain kind of way where i just i just i just try and get out of work well we are tired and life is expensive and we do enjoy and desire our entertainments but it's a false model to think that my entertainments should entirely be passive, where I just sit there and take it in. Yeah, I don't think we would blame anyone for indulging in that. Or maybe there are some people who, for whom this is uh, not laudable. I think a lot of people, yeah, they're just, you know, if you don't make a lot of money and you're tired and life is hard, even under the best of circumstances. So I don't know that we're trying to cast aspersions or anything there. Well, no, of course not. I mean, um, and lots of times we haven't we haven't been inspired to um, to read Homer or to read Dante or something like that, and and no one has ever convinced us that it's worthwhile. And it is, in fact, a lot of work. Uh, it's more difficult, but to recognize that it's worth the effort to put in, um, you've got to be equipped to do that, and that's um, that's very difficult and very challenging in a in a world that is frequently not not committed to to those um those ideals and and it's unable to pass on either the skills or the inclinations to engage in those kinds of endeavors oh sure i feel very lucky or privileged to to be able to indulge in those sorts of activities i absolutely feel like my relationship to the concept of leisure has changed i think Multiple essays of yours in this book do a great job of addressing this, both doing it and getting it done. And the one or ones that uh, Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture come up. But if I'm tinkering around the house or I'm managing my compost heaps or gardening or pruning roses or checking on my sourdough proofing, all of those things I I find uh, pleasurable and that they're they're laborious, but I also had a serious plumbing challenge that was just within my ability to deal with it, much like yours. And I had to go, I think, three or four times to various plumbing stores, and I eventually figured it out. And, oh, it was, I don't know, I, you probably felt a great deal of pride, didn't you? You're not a plumber, but you, you sort of learned. You solved a problem. It's a great feeling. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a great feeling. And, um, and also, there's a little bit of apprehensiveness. Did I do this right? Uh, is it going to last? Yeah, that's uh, spooky. <laughs> but but you might even qualify this as a form of leisure for you. Did that feel like leisure, or or how that, exactly are you using that this? That did term? not feel like leisure that, to me. That did okay. Uh, but, my plumbing uh, did a little bit because I felt my intellectually stimulated, and I got something done. So I got to check something off of a list. And but uh, I think it was like probably it was elective. I probably could have just called someone and then spent my time watching Netflix but I didn't. And it felt yeah. really, so is that leisure? What do you mean by that? I guess in general too. Well, before the interview started, or maybe I'm not supposed to say that uh, here, we were talking about, <laughs> you're going to break uh, the fourth wall on us. Scott, right. I don't know how you feel about postmodernism. You cannot acknowledge that. 
uh, stays inside the text. Okay, there's an, there's another whole set of conversations here. <laughs> but, but we're talking about well, Peeper's wonderful book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And Peeper, Joseph Peeper, a great uh, German uh, Catholic philosopher of the last century, does not mean merely the avoidance of work. He, he also doesn't mean working hard and just valuing it. He, he means that intentional cessation of, of the work that we have to do with an eye toward attentiveness to the world around us and, um, and to the capacity to reflect upon that which attention brings to us. Um, and so, you know, there are, are lots of tasks that we engage in that as I think about them, I begin to reflect uh, on, on, on what's at stake. But, but leisure is actually that those times in which I, um, I stop from digging the fence posts for the new pigsty, and I watch the pigs, and I reflect on their extraordinary intelligence and the life that is given to, the, to these, uh, these magnificent animals. And, um, and what my relationship is to them and, and how it is that I should go about thinking about them, even the ones that I'm going to process that are going to end up in the freezer uh, someday. There's a, there is a, a connection here, the recognition that we feed them and they feed us. And that cycle of life that's involved here is crucial for sort of understanding the tasks of, that come in the farm and those that come in our outward life in all the many ways in which we are uh, engaged by the world and its challenges. Wow, that's a lovely overlap when you can find find that sweet spot and that mix there. What's the link between that understanding of leisure and Christian thought? Because where does that overlap happen? Well, I'm a Christian, and I think it's the most uh, the most natural of ways for there to be an overlap because I understand my life as a, a, a life that has been blessed by, by grace, and it is not of, not of my own sort of achievement uh, here. And, and my, my opportunity is to, to be a steward of the gifts that I have received, both material and um, spiritual and emotional and intellectual. And so there's a great sense of gratitude that, um, that emerges there, gratitude not only of um, my family and friends, but, but of my students and of the various institutions that I'm involved in, and including church and, and ultimately and finally to God. And I think that if we, we, we look at the history of Christian thought and Christian theology, one of the things we find are enormous resources for, for reflecting on precisely what this sense of gratitude is and, and the way that it transforms me from sort of who I have been to who it is that God wants me to be and how I can be a good steward precisely of, um, of those gifts. I think that, that uh, it's the most natural thing in the world. Now, of course, uh, the, the church is filled with, uh, with tragedy and with culpability, and our, our is not a story that uh, is free from blame, far from it, but it is a pilgrim story. It's a story of, of going forward, of attempting to be faithful amidst the challenges that we find ourselves in. Yeah, there's quite a lot there. 
that spirit of leisure, as you described it, and gratitude seems, you know, quite, for lack of a better term here, in vogue. Um, but there doesn't seem to be much representation of Christianity as being uh, present focus. Most people, when they think of Christianity, probably think of, you know, either past sins or what happens after you die. I don't think there's a lot of room in there for like actual present centered engagement with your, your work in a meaningful biophilic life-giving kind of way, as you describe it. Is this just a failure of communication or how come just the, the list of do's and don'ts and whether what happens after you die takes such a strong place, especially given now that people are meditating and focus so heavily on presentness. You know, it's, I think it's a great um, tragedy that Christians uh, in all ages would have focused only on the life to come or only on the present life. Christ says in the Gospels, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And that abundance of life is not about material possessions, what the sort of health and wealth gospel would want to say, but the, the fullness of all that life can be. And it was never merely about what happens after one dies. We were talking about Dante, and I, I think that, that many of the, the great thinkers uh, in the church would recognize that um, the life that one lives with God after one dies is a, is a great mystery in all kinds of ways. Um, the goal of the Christian life is not fire insurance. The goal of the Christian life is fellowship with God. The first question of the Westminster Catechism, I'm not a Presbyterian, but it says, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And there is a, a joyous character that should characterize our lives here. And so it's, we're cutting ourselves off from, you know, with, uh, with at least half of, half of what the Christian life is, if I think that it's only about sort of trying to stay this side of some kind of imaginary line so that I can get into heaven and avoid hell. That's to completely miss the point. Hmm. Yeah, and those afterlife questions, too. I've read this, like, Gregory A. Boyd stuff on annihilationism, <laughs> too, which is a, or like David Bentley Hart's, uh, basically everyone gets in. And then I've also, even in Dante, there's not only mythological figures in uh, in various realms of the afterlife, but also pagans, uh, some of which were uh, rescued in the harrowing. So like Old Testament figures got rescued when Jesus uh, was crucified and before he was resurrected, if my understanding is correct. But uh, even Dante is sort of, I don't, I don't know how much liberty he's taking with theology there, but that's definitely in the mix. Yes, I think you should change the name of your your um, your show to um, the Divine Comedy Revisited. I'm just an opportunist, Scott. I just I just okay. went for it. That's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's one of the one of the really uh, uh, the longstanding questions and important issues are the the connection between the the Greek and Roman mythological world, uh, pagan philosophy and uh, pagan literature, and the rich. Christian traditions, Christian theology, and Christian literature, we find those integrated and merged in, uh, in Dante. He will refer to Christ as Apollo. Uh, he will speak of the rebellion against Jupiter or Jove by the giants as like unto the rebellion against, uh, against God. So we find this kind of integration all the way through the Commedia. And we do, in fact, find uh, some unlikely people in, uh, in various places. I mean, the 
the first and foremost of, of the unlikely people that we encounter is, uh, is Cato guarding the slopes of Mount Purgatory at the very beginning of the, the second canticle, Purgatorio. Cato uh, is not, uh, he's not a Christian. Um, he's a virtuous pagan. He should have been in limbo. Uh, he's a, a suicide. He should have been in the realm of those who commit violence against themselves. And he was an opponent of Julius Caesar. And Dante puts uh, Brutus and Cassius at the very pit of hell with Judas uh, as among the most damned of all those. And yet here is Cato on the slopes guarding the beaches of Mount Purgatory. And scholars have for centuries speculated about why Cato is there. And um, there are obviously lots of reasons here, but I perhaps none of them are as persuasive as just the recognition of the inscrutable grace of God, that whatever it is that God is up to is above and beyond our formula and our narrowness of vision that we have here. Cato shouldn't be there, but Cato, Cato is there, and he's there because of God. And, um, and so we, we find these kinds of instances throughout the Commedia. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice, unexpected touch in Dante, because most of the people I know, now that I'm older, I know a fair number of theologians, and many of them are quite silly and, and open-ended and, and just genuinely fun to speak with. But I think when most people think of people who are serious about religion, they seem staid, kind of a scary, inflexible. And it's fun that Dante carves out such a strong space for, yeah, the inscrutability of God as a Christian. Like there are rules that are operating that don't, words cannot convey. In fact, I forget which canto, canto it is in uh, Paradiso, but words just start to fail, right? You just sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what to say. It's, well, it's, that's, <laughs> that is certainly the case. I mean, over and over again, um, you know, Dante will, Dante the character will say in the Paradiso, I, I can't do justice to what it is that I am um, I'm seeing here. You know, you talk about the seriousness and the, the silliness. I'm, I think about G.K. Chesterton. I mean, Chesterton's wonderful line that uh, it is, uh, it's, it's easy to be heavy. It is, it is hard to be light. Satan fell because of the gravity, the heaviness of, um, of his character. And when you recognize that Chesterton himself probably weighed 300 pounds, you see the, the joke and the, the self, uh, good self sense of teasing here. But this notion that we are inclined to a, a certain kind of seriousness such that we, um, we, we, we miss some of the joy that comes from, uh, from the, the easiness, the lightness that comes from our lives. But that's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful Chesterton line. Yeah, I hadn't heard that one. That's that's quite interesting. Well, what should someone listening think about not just Dante, but uh, great books, Western canon, the classics? What should they think? And what is the overlap with climate change? The stuff with farming and philosophy, this is par for the course for the podcast. We talk, in fact, a fan made a bingo card for the show and Wendell Berry was just his own square that whenever Wendell Berry gets mentioned, you put a token down. So um, we're familiar with this. Great books are not as present here. And I've been trying to find a way in, as I mentioned, what is the connection with climate change or how might we make this Dante and others relevant to stuff that we care about? Well, that's a huge question, Ross, and I, I'm not sure that I know I know the answer here. I mean, I, I think I would say that that first of all, you know, great books aren't a thing. 
you get a bunch of smart people together and ask them what the great books are, and they're not going to all agree. And so we we recognize right off the bat that that reading the great books is not um, is not a bucket list, right? It's not this. It's it's a way of life. It's something that you're engaged in, and and things will come on and off the list depending on sort of where we are and what we're we're thinking about and and where our life's situations are. But the reason that people have been reading Homer for almost 3,000 years are listening or thinking about this is because of its perennial value. The fact that there's something about the human condition that, that speaks to us. We're, you know, we've been talking a lot about Dante. This book was written in the early 1300s, the 14th century, right? So, I mean, we are, um, we're 700 years away from this book. And here we are on a podcast through computers on the internet talking about this this guy that was kicked out of his town because of political intrigue and writes uh, this incredibly long and challenging poem. 700 years later, there's got to be something here or people wouldn't keep coming back to it. It's because of the recognition that there's nothing new under the sun. And we continually find ourselves addressing these perennial human questions. And what is happiness? And what should my life look like? And who can I count on? And is there a God? And what does, and if so, what does this God require of me? And um, how do I take care of those that I love? And why do bad things happen to good people? And these questions do not go away. And they're the questions that the great books answer and address over and over again. And we begin to recognize um, that, um, that they transcend historical time. They transcend gender, they transcend race, they transcend religion. That's why we keep coming back to them over and over again. And it's why the list is always, always changing and always growing and things that we're, we're discovering and seeing that we've, we've perhaps never, never seen before. I usually say I like reading books inside of this broad Western tradition, because it's like being part of a, you know, multi thousand year book club. The thing is, you know, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of reflection in the conversation that that these texts are written by dead white European males, and um, there's a very limited and skewed perception of place in society, and they're giving a, a, a view of those things. You know, a lot, there's a lot of truth to that. It's also the case that um, those societies were geared in such a way that that many many people from society didn't have access to the education or to the opportunities. These are important things to think about and to talk about and to, to find the voices and to listen to them. That doesn't mean that, that somehow or another, those other voices have to be eliminated or not taken seriously. And one of the things that we very quickly discover is that there's a great deal more diversity than we might have imagined. St. Augustine is an African. Uh, Dostoevsky is a, is a Russian. Uh, Cervantes is a Spaniard. I mean, these are very different cultures, very different worlds, and um, they shouldn't all be sort of looped together as if it were just sort of as if Western civilization were one thing. It's it's not one thing by uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And to the extent to which we have the opportunity and the occasion and the talent to be able to integrate Eastern authors, we need to do that as well, because there's a great deal to be learned here. I, I have a colleague who regularly teaches Confucius's Analects with uh, Aristotle's Ethics together, and this sort of picture, sort of Eastern and Western picture 
of what human flourishing looks like. And it's a powerful course he teaches here because we're talking about the human spirit, talking about what does it mean to be happy uh, as a human being. So I think that the, the, these books open up this conversation for us. They open it up in a way that allow us to have that meaningful conversation about matters that matter. And they've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, we get to be a part of that conversation. That's a very good way to put it. And that's also what attracts me to, yeah, you're reading the, the Analects of Confucius or you know, read the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or the Dhammapada or any of those texts from the Indian subcontinent. Those have also been read by so many people and been so influential in those societies and to a lesser extent to European and American ones. But um, there's a line from Paul Theroux's The Mosquito Coast. Granted, this is said by the insane father who leads them on a uh, on a <laughs> mission into the jungle. But he says he read the Bible to understand Western civilization's operating system and its sort of like core software and see like where it went wrong. And that's part of it, too. I like understanding that these were influential on people who made important decisions and helped shape the world that we inhabit today. I found that Chesterton quotation. Can I read the whole thing? Um, oh, yeah, go for it. Uh, this comes from Orthodoxy, and here's the, the claim. He says, pride, this is Chesterton talking about pride and seriousness. He says, pride is the downward drag of all things into an easy solemnity. Seriousness is not a virtue. It would be a heresy, but a sensible heresy, to say that seriousness is a vice. It is really a natural trend uh, or a lapse into taking one's self gravely because it is the easiest thing to do. For solemnity flows out of men naturally, but laughter is a leap. It is easy to be heavy. It is hard to be light. Satan fell by the force of gravity. So wonderful Chesterton quotation there. Yeah, that guy could turn a phrase. That's very interesting. Whenever I am engaging with religious work, I always feel gravitated a bit towards more mystical interpretations of it. I think there's a lot to like about Quakerism. I like that there's not a strong doctrinal element of trying to specify ahead of time. Or even in Catholic Mass, I like that they'll say, let us prepare to celebrate the sacred mysteries. You're just like, oh, it's a it's a mystery? Like, it isn't all totally worked out? That being said, I don't know how they square that with something like the various creeds that they recite or profess, I should say. What does it mean for it to be a mystery, but then you also have all these creeds where you say all the things that you allegedly know? How does that work? Is this too far afield, Scott? Um, well, it's not too far afield, but it's it's going to make your show a lot longer. Um, uh, so we might have to, if we're going to integrate the joyful mysteries and the sorrowful mysteries um, uh, with the creeds, uh, we probably need to have our own show uh, for that. Uh, I mean, the, the credo is just Latin for I believe. And these are these beliefs are a confession of faith. And every confession of faith also involves mystery, right? Because there's a limit to what we can and cannot know. And in the case of when the Catholic speaks of the joyful mysteries or the sorrowful mysteries as part of the rosary, I mean, they are, in fact, reflecting on um, those aspects of Christ's life and of the, the teaching that we have here that defy our capacity to put them in a box to understand these things. But that doesn't keep me from being able to say, I believe X. And I confess that belief with other people through the ages, trans-historical, transnational, transracial, all of these things go beyond. Uh, they are something that I have with all believers through the ages. Or, and um, so, 
you know, the idea that that I would believe something and yet there would be mysteries to it is not at all mysterious. It would be really mysterious if I claimed that I knew everything about any of the things that I claimed I know, whether it's on the farm or in my profession or in my marriage or even with regard to my own self, uh, who, who it is that I am. There are inscrutable mysteries as we try to understand these matters. Yeah, I wonder if that's something that maybe to a pre-modern mind was totally natural. And given that we live in the era that we do, it just strikes the ear a little bit different. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it does. But it's a kind of it's a kind of falseness. And I think that, that uh, your show is a particularly good place um, to expose this sort of falseness because there are lots of people that, that think they know uh, all that there is to know. I mean, you think about all of these... Uh, these climate change uh, deniers who think that because they've got a little bit of data, they can extrapolate from that as to what um, what must be the case or what is not the case or something along these lines. Um, there are always mysteries. And yet in the midst of the mysteries, there are certain things that we can't not know and that we can't not see to be the case. And so we confess those things and we, um, we seek to understand what we don't know. And um, and sometimes we bump up against the limits of knowledge. There are things that we can't know here. But our age, the, the age of the point and click, the age of the pocket computer, the age of Wikipedia, lives under the fallacy that anything can be known and known without effort. And that's just not the case. I'm so glad you said that. You brought us all the way back to where we needed to end up. Scott, thanks for being on the show. Well, Ross, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate the invitation, and I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. Oh, it's great. Yeah, if you're listening, the link is in the show notes, How to Burn a Goat, Farming with the Philosophers. Plenty of good questions, lots of good analysis, some funny anecdotes. It will definitely make you want to do as much or as little as you can with the amount of space that you have available to you. It did that for me. So, um, yeah, well done, Scott. You made well, me have more well. farmer envy. Well, if you're ever in Texas, come on down. Love to have you here. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. If you're listening, thank you for being a fan of the show. I hope you like this sort of, I don't know, quasi-esoteric turn that this took. If you want to talk more about these books, I would love excuses to do so. So uh, if you feel strongly about it one way or the other, feel free to reach out at podcast at nori.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Tell your friends. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.